Thank you, Arden, for reading Scripture. As we interact with God's Word this morning, I would like for you to think about a struggle or a temptation that you face in life. A struggle or temptation that you face in life that seems to come fairly often. It's a real battle for you. And keep that in the back of your mind as we consider some verses from Mark chapter 14. Father, we thank you for your word as we consider Christ in the garden this morning. We want to be hearers of your word. For it's in Christ's name I pray, amen. Jesus said, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will but what you will. What a profound irony Gethsemane conceals. For when Jesus feels most excluded from God's presence, he is in fact closest to God's will. Gethsemane is a prelude to Calvary. For in the valley beneath the city, Jesus allows his soul to be crucified On a hill above the city, he relinquishes his body. As we think about Christ and going to the cross, let's turn to Mark 14. We want to read together in just a moment verses 32 through 42. Up to this point in Mark's gospel, we find that Mark has very, very clearly revealed the identity, the being, the character of Christ. He is the Son of God. He is the Lamb of God. He's a perfect once-for-all sacrifice. Jesus is about to go to his trial, his crucifixion. What is the preparation? Mark 14, 32 through 42. This was after the 11 emphatically said, we will follow Christ. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, said, here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him and began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Once more he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping Because their eyes were heavy, they did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise. Let us go. Here comes my betrayer. As we move into the Surrender of Christ to his Father's will into the 
arrest and the crucifixion of Christ. Ponder with me what James Edwards says, and I quote, In the Last Supper, Jesus spoke of the bread and the wine as representations of his body and blood poured out for many. The relinquishment of Jesus' body on Golgotha, however, depends on the prior surrender of his will to the Father. That surrender takes place not on a hill outside Jerusalem, but in a valley beneath it. According to Mark, the decision to submit to the Father's will causes Jesus greater internal suffering than the physical crucifixion on Golgotha. The cross is a matter of the heart before a matter of the hand, a matter of the will before an empirical reality. End of quote. Gethsemane was located east of the Kinron Brook at the foot of the Mount of Olives. And we find that Jesus is praying in the garden. They had come out of the city after the Last Supper. And he goes to the garden. And there he prays. And then you see at the top of the screen we have Golgotha, possibly. One traditional there to the left. And then where the garden tomb would be. And as we think about this passage... And what's happening with Christ, the characters involved are Christ. The text makes that very clear. And the events are taking place with Jesus being a primary character just before his trial, just before his crucifixion. The eleven are also involved, and remember, the eleven are proud and arrogant. In verse 31, the text says, But Peter insisted emphatically, Even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. We have a broken Jesus going to the cross. We have 11 men who are proud and arrogant saying, we won't deny you. And then I want to point out that we have a Peter, a James, and a John. Now notice what happens in the text. Jesus takes the 11. They go to Gethsemane. Eight of them apparently are left at one spot. He takes Peter, James, and John along with him a little further. And then he says to them, you stay here and watch with me. And he goes beyond that, and he is praying. So in the context of Peter, James, and John, in chapter 5, in verse 37, it was Peter, James, and John that were with Jesus in the house when he raised the girl from the dead. In chapter 8, in verse 33, it was Peter who rebuked Jesus. When Jesus talked about the cross, you know, again, some pride and some arrogance. In chapter 10, 38 and 39, we find that James and John, one wanted to sit on his right and one on his left, you know, just kind of ignoring the other 10. In chapter 14 and 29 and 30, what does Peter say? Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. And then Jesus says, you will. And Peter says in 31, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And we know that James and John would have said likewise in light of verse 
31. Now please get the text. We have the eight at one place, the three at another place, and Jesus says to the three, stay and keep watch with me. And then he goes beyond that, and he is going to pray. But while he is with Peter, James, and John, the text says, they went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him and began to be deeply distressed and troubled. The idea of deeply distressed is to be amazed, to be awestruck, to be alarmed. Now remember, Jesus is going to go through his trial. He's going to go to the cross to pay for the sin of the world. Deeply distressed is a rare word in the New Testament used only in Mark 9, 15, Mark 14, 33, and Mark 16, 5 and 6. He's deeply distressed. He's also troubled. The word occurs in Matthew 26, 37, Mark 14, 33, and Philippians 2 and 26, and it means distressed. So what does he do? He's deeply distressed and troubled, and he says to the three, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow. He's burdened with grief. And then he says, keep watch. Stay here and keep watch. Be attentive. Be vigilant. Be circumspect. We have the eight. We have the three who were told clearly to stay and keep watch. And Jesus goes further away, and he prays. Now, Jesus is deeply distressed. He's deeply uh, troubled. So he withdraws. He goes alone. Nothing in Scripture compares to Jesus' agony and anguish in Gethsemane. Neither the lament of the Psalms the broken of heart of Abraham as he sacrificed his son Isaac. David's grief at the death of, death of his son Absalom. The text in Mark's gospel speaks of sweat falling to the ground as it were drops of blood. The suffering of the cross left a deep imprint upon the early church. Hebrews 5, 7 through 10, which Lord Willing will discuss in a few weeks, talks about the fact that Jesus learned suffering or learned obedience through suffering. The grim reality of Gethsemane is a guarantee of its being true in history. We can scarcely imagine that early Christians, and especially Mark, who emphasizes the divine authority of Christ would invent a story of torment that is going to take place. The very torment provides a clue as to Jesus' understanding of his impending death. Why was Jesus so upset about his death? We know individuals who have faced their death with great courage and composure. Did not Socrates... Greet death as a friend. 
and a liberator of a better life? Did not the Stoics preach serene resignation to fate? Why Jesus, who foreknew his death, foresaw his death, why is he now seeming to quail before it? I think the answer lies in that Jesus is facing something more than simply his own death. In Mark 10:45, he spoke of the purpose of the Son of Man coming to give his life as a ransom for many. That was his purpose in coming. In Gethsemane, Jesus is making the first payment of that ransom to become the sin bearer for humanity. Jesus stands before the final consequences of the trial on the cross and is surrendering to the Father. It is one thing to be fearful, as it will be, to answer for our own sins before a holy and almighty God. Who can be or who can imagine what it would be like to stand before God to answer for every sin and crime and act of malice and injury? and evil in the world. In surrendering to the Father's will, the sins of many interceding for transgressors. Jesus experiences the abandonment and the darkness in great proportions. The worst prospect of becoming the sin bearer for humanity is that it spells complete alienation from his father and that fellowship he had enjoyed for an eternity past. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is what he cried from the cross. Not his own mortality, but the horror of identifying with sinners so fully as to become the object of God's judgment against sin. It is this that overwhelms the soul to the point of death. Now this is taking place in the garden with the eight at one spot, the three at another spot, and Jesus away praying, and the text says he prayed. He is communicating with his Father. And notice what he says. Going a little further in verse 35, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Only in Mark's gospel does Jesus cry out to his father, Abba. It's taken from literature that implies trust, coming from the Aramaic. Jesus trusting his father. Gethsemane presents us with a unique human interplay between the heart of the Son and the will of the Father. Jesus' prayer is not the result of calm absorption into an all-encompassing divine presence, 
but in an intense struggle with the frightful reality of God's will and what it means to be fully submitted to his Father. The fundamental humanness of the prayer is evident and is employing God in directed dress. Take this cup from me. We're dealing with a man who is fully human, but God. And as a fully human person, take this cup from me. That is a prayer for God not to strike the shepherd. It is possible for Jesus to fulfill God's will in all ways but this one. Or is some other way. Perhaps with, as with Isaac, the sacrifice can be averted. Even though the arm of Abraham is raised with the daggers ready to plunge. The plea of Jesus suggests that he is genuinely tempted to forsake the role of the suffering servant. We so many times treat Jesus as just some superhuman that was not fully human. And it was a piece of cake for him to walk to the cross. But his will to obey the Father is stronger than his desire to serve himself. Throughout his ministry, he had disavowed every exit ramp from the pathway of suffering and servanthood, including the temptation to remain on the mountain with Moses and Elijah in chapter 9. His will conforms to his knowledge of God's will to undergo the baptism, to accept the cup, to meet the hour. And he says, not what I will, but what you will. Take a moment to reflect on the distress of Jesus. The humanity of Jesus and the nature of his prayer. Everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. Christ asked that the cup be taken away because he was truly man as well as God. We must realize that his request for another way came from two things that he saw. He would have seen a cup full of sin. He saw the brutality of a thousand killing fields. All the whoring of human earthly civilization, blaspheme, profanity, a cup brimming with jealousy, Hatred, covetousness, lying, cutting words, passive men, disobedient children, gossipers, unforgiveness, and pornography. He's bearing the sin of the world. He saw a cup of judgment. As sin bearer, he became the object of the Father's holy judgment against sin. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21. The drinking also made him a curse. Galatians 3.13 says, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Gazing into the cup, Jesus saw how open for him 
and he staggered. It is no wonder that we see the blood-like sweat and tears, that we hear him crying out for deliverance. It is no wonder that we read in Luke that the Father sent an angel to strengthen him. In all of the anguish that Jesus is facing in the garden, there's unconditional submissiveness. Doing the Father's will had been his supreme concern in life, and it continues to to be his supreme concern. He said in John 6 and verse 38, For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. See, Jesus, as fully human, learned obedience, according to Hebrews 5, 7 through 10, through the things that he suffered. In the greatest display of obedience that will ever be known, Jesus took the cup of man's sin and God's judgment, looking, shuddering deep into its depth, and in an act of his will, chose to drink it all. What steeled Jesus for what was coming? What prepared him for the trial and the crucifixion? And as you look at the trial and crucifixion, that seems like a piece of cake in contrast to the garden. Comes very loud, very clear in Mark's gospel that the battle was in the garden, not in the trial and the crucifixion. I think the text tells us what made it possible for Jesus to go to the cross. The end of verse 34, he says, Stay here and keep watch with me. And then what happens? He prays to the Father. Apparently, for an hour, he is talking to his Father. And all that is recorded that he said was, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. For an hour, he is battling with the Father. And that's where the victory takes place in the garden. He's talking to his Father. And I don't know if you've ever been through a battle in life where you battle with surrender to God. And you said the same thing maybe over and over, but you're battling. You say, God, I'm really struggling, but I'm willing to surrender. The battle was won in prayer. Without surrender in prayer, there would be no cross. Stop and think. How many battles do we lose because we haven't surrendered to Christ? Prayer is so vital for Jesus. Prayer is so vital for the Christian. As men and women, as husbands and fathers, as mothers and wives and children, employees and employers. The early church was victorious because they prayed. So Jesus spends an hour in prayer with his father. He returns to the disciples, and apparently when he says disciples, we're talking to three because he says, Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch with me or keep watch for one hour? 
Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Now remember, Peter is going to deny Jesus three times. And Jesus says, Peter, can you keep watch with me for one hour? Watch and pray so that you won't fall into temptation. Apparently, if Peter had watched and prayed, rather than sleeping, he wouldn't have fell into the temptation of denying knowing Jesus because Jesus clearly states, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. How many temptations do we yield to because we didn't watch and pray? So Jesus says, the spirit is willing. Oh, yeah, I want to do this. But the body is weak. See, the spiritual danger of the hour is not only Jesus. It's also the 11. Jesus knew what was coming for the 11. Watch and pray so that you don't enter into temptation. He's inviting his inner circle to watch, to pray, to be still, stilled in life for what is coming through watching and praying. So what does Jesus do? Verse 39, once again he went away and he prayed the same thing. So he spends a second hour praying what? Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. You ever been through a temptation where you surrender to God and then right around a couple minutes later, you're doing the same thing? It's what Jesus is doing. It says he prayed the same thing. When he came back after a second hour, he found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. What does Jesus do? He returns a third time. Apparently went back and he prayed to the Father in light of the other Gospels for another hour. And he returns. And he says to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. If Jesus is to fulfill his destiny as God's son, the only answer to his prayer will resound with accusations and hammer blows at Calvary, against which drug wine would not dull in any way. What profound irony Gethsemane conceals for when Jesus feels most excluded from God's presence. He is, in fact, the closest to God's will. Gethsemane is the prelude to Calvary. For in the valley beneath the city, 
Jesus allows his soul to be crucified on a hill above the city. He relinquishes his body. What was the purpose of watching and praying? So that Jesus would not fall into temptation. It was not to escape. But to go through. To surrender. And I emphasize again what I read a moment ago. What profound irony in Gethsemane conceals. For when Jesus feels most excluded from God's presence, he's in fact closest to God's will. Gethsemane is a prelude to Calvary. For in a valley beneath the city, Jesus allows his soul to be crucified. On a hill above the city, he relinquishes his body. Mark pictures Jesus battling tremendously for three hours in the garden. But he walks through the trial and the crucifixion and the cross. It seems with great ease. And I'm not belittling the trial and crucifixion in any way. But why would he walk through that with ease? Because in surrender to the Father in the garden, God gave him the grace and the strength to walk through the trial and the crucifixion. Without the surrender in the garden, there was no grace to obey in the trial and crucifixion. That's why the twelve, I'm sorry, the eleven did not stand up. They didn't watch. They didn't pray. As a result, they blew it. I would pose a question. Mark is writing probably to the Roman believers. How did the Roman believers hear this? The Roman believers lighting Nero's garden. The Roman believers being thrown to the wild animals and be torn to pieces as thousands of people are in the stands watching and cheering and just enjoying Christians being torn apart. How did they hear this passage? I can't say dogmatically, but they probably heard that suffering for Christ is part of life. That's part of surrender to God. Jesus surrendered to his Father meant the trial and the cross. The surrender of the Roman believers to Christ meant lighting Nero's garden, being thrown to the wild animals. And that would have been an encouragement to them in the sense that we need to watch. We need to pray. So that when we're taken to Light Nero's garden, that we stand firm. As we're going to be thrown to the wild animals, we die well for Christ. We have the grace. As you read about the martyrs in various historical accounts, who were praising God as they died because they watched and they prayed. And when the hour of trial came, the grace was present to walk through it. I think the Roman believers probably heard also, watch and pray in your temptation. Just watch and pray. 
Go repeatedly to the Father. Go repeatedly to Christ as you watch and pray in the midst of temptation. Whether it be Jesus, whether it be the Roman believers, whether it be believers today, we are in a war. Watch and pray. Watching and praying involves open, honest talking with our Father in deep confidence concerning the trials that we know we will face. Watching and praying involves surrender to God's will, a passion to know God, but a freedom in talking to God. Those of you who go to work tomorrow, those of you who will go to school in the fall, since school is out, I think, for everyone, you know what you're going to face in any given day to some extent. Do you go to God? We have that freedom in going to God and saying, God, this circumstance at work or at school is really hard for me. I tend not to respond correctly. But I'm coming to surrender to you. I want to respond correctly. And then you come home from school or work. We'll say you're coming home from work and you know that your mate sometimes can be difficult and you can be difficult. And you end up responding incorrectly. You yell and you get into an argument. And you say, God, that's a temptation I face. And here's how I tend to respond. My mate responds one way and I tend to respond in kind. And we end up in an argument. I'm surrendering to you. I don't want to live that way. I need your grace to be kind when my mate is not kind to me. See, that's watching. That's praying. That's a father crying out to God and saying, God, my daughter, my son is coming home tonight. They're already an hour late. And I would like to tear them to pieces when they walk in the door. But I'm to be a grace giver. I'm to respond to them in a way that's going to help them mature in a walk with God. I'm watching. I'm praying, God. A child saying, Dad and Mom, respond to me in an ungodly way. They're not teaching. They're not training me. And God, I'm just ready to run away from home. I've had it. But God, it's your will that I obey, Mom and Dad. That's watching. That's praying. That's a young man or a young woman going out on a date, knowing that on the date there's going to be sexual temptation. And the young man and the young woman say, God, I know I'm going to be tempted. But I know your will is for purity, sexual purity. I need the grace to be strong for your glory. It's a man sitting down at his computer and knowing that as he turns on the computer, there's going to be a temptation to have some things come up on that screen that are not correct. And he says, God, I know what you want, but I'm pulled so strongly towards this pornography. It has a grip on me. I don't want that. I'm going to watch and I'm going to pray. In fact, I'm going to turn the computer off and not be on it unless there's someone else in the room with me.
because I want your will. Watch and pray. I think there's so many applications to what Jesus did as he's in the garden. He went to the cross so that we can cry, Abba, Father. He went to the cross so that he can be our high priest. Do you know Christ? If not, why not come to him today? Is he your Abba, Father? And then secondly, are you watching? Are you praying? Father, we thank you for your word. We're thankful for the garden, the record, record of the garden scene here in Mark's gospel. May we grasp in a little deeper way the agony that Christ faced as a man who was fully human, but also the Son of God. The surrender that took place so that as he went to his trial and he went to his crucifixion, there could be obedience. Teach us for your glory. For it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.